Uh, right now, we are in the middle of a short sermon series exploring what it means to love one another. Uh, last week, we discussed the importance of being present in each other's lives, and today, I would like to take a step further and examine what it means to pursue one another. Can I ask a question? When was the last time you pursued a person? You pursued this person not for romantic reasons. You pursued this person not for a promotion or a connection or to network. But you pursued someone so that he or she would come to know Christ for the first time. You pursued someone so that he or she might be reminded of Christ because they had forgotten. You know, often the things that we pursue in life are a career. Uh, we pursue a lifestyle. We pursue health. We pursue a degree. We pursue happiness and pleasure. But when was the last time you pursued an individual so that he or she would grow closer to the one whose name is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, my goal today is not in guilt-tripping you. We all admit and confess that we live self-centered lives. We care more about ourselves than we do of others. And I'm sure everyone here would agree that we need to work on pursuing other people, and I'm not going to state the obvious. But instead, what I want to do today is I want to share with you the way in which God pursues people. I want to remind you of how he pursued you and how God is presently pursuing many like you. And hopefully, through this, our love for one another will grow through this, we can be a church that reflects God's loving pursuit of other people. And through this, we can get a glimpse of God's heart. Now today, we'll look at the first half of the parable, and next week, we'll look at the second half. But it is through my prayer that as we examine the story and how God pursues people, that our church would really get a glimpse of God's heart, and we would share in that heart in our pursuit of others. So, Luke 15. This well-known passage begins with Jesus eating and talking with sinners, and the Pharisees, uh, the people who were considered the establishment of that time, the moral exemplars of that time, they take issue with this. How is it, Jesus, that you are eating with such sinful, sinful people? And so Jesus begins to tell them a series of stories, three stories to be exact, three stories about the lost being found. Now, the first two stories are rather customary. It's about an owner losing something and finding it. But it's the third story, the story that we read today, that takes the hearers by surprise. The story goes like this. There was a father who had two sons. The youngest one day comes to the father, and he says, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. Give me my share of the property that is coming to me. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. First, 
This is not a question, it is not a request, but this is a demand. Give it to me, give it to me. Second, he's demanding something that is due to him in the future, but he's asking, give it to me now. Whatever is due to me in the future, I want that now. Okay. Third, if you notice what he says, the son doesn't ask for his inheritance. Instead, he says, give me my property. Now, this is a, a small nuance, but I think it's noteworthy. If he would have said, give me my inheritance, it would have meant, hey, inheritance implies responsibility. It implies a continuity with the family. The son doesn't want responsibility. This son doesn't want to continue with his fam family, family's lineage. But what he wants is just simply, he wants property. Simply put, he wants wealth. Give me wealth. Finally, fourth, to meet this demand, the father would have to go around and liquidate his assets. He would have to go around with land, flock, whatever he had owned, any deeds, he would have to go and he would have to sell them for currency. That meant that in doing this act, the entire family was going to suffer. But the son, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that his demand is hurting the entire family. He doesn't care about the shame that his father is going to face in trying to sell all of the property. He doesn't care. The son wants nothing to do with this family. He wants nothing to do with this father. He doesn't want an inheritance. He just wants wealth. Give me money so I can go on my way. Friends, imagine. Imagine that, you know, if you have a child, or if you don't, imagine you had a child that one day comes to you. He sits you down and says, Mom, Dad, listen, I know that you are planning amazing, amazing things for me. I know you are doing amazing things for me, but this is what I want. I've done the math, and I want everything that you are planning to do for me in the future. I want it now. I've done the math, and there's a reasonable cost for food and shelter for the next 10 years. Right? He puts on a PowerPoint presentation. This is what it is. This is the line. Health insurance for the next 10 years. Clothing for the next 10 years. Extracurricular activities, uh, birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, plus whatever you're going to put away for college, all of these things adjusted for 2% interest, right, which is standard. And the son says, I want all of that now because it's mine anyway. I want that now. You won't have to worry about me. You won't have to take care of me. I'll leave the house. I'll get out of your way. Just give me that lump sum, and we'll be even Stephen. I mean, how absurd would that be? Imagine if that actually happened. How hurt would you be? Right? Because it's not about the money. It's the fact that your child 
doesn't want anything to do with you. He or she only wants you for your possessions. There's a man by the name of Kenneth Bailey. He's a well-known biblical scholar who lived and taught in the Middle East for over 60 years. He grew up in Egypt, uh, was educated uh, all around, and he eventually went back to do ministry and teach in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Cyprus, all throughout. Uh, this man was not only able to teach there, but he was also able to do ministry in real remote villages in the Middle East. And some of these villages that he documents are villages that remain virtually unchanged, untouched, for hundreds if not thousands of years. Right? Imagine that you got into a time machine and you traveled back to Jesus' time. Okay? These are some of the areas that Kenneth Bailey did ministry in. Now this man, uh, Bailey, through these interactions that he had uh, with these villages, he was able to do social science research. And through this research, he produced some ground, groundbreaking work. His most influential work uh, was on this parable. And he, while reading the story, understanding and seeing how the people interacted with the story, he was able to produce a lot of, a lot of groundbreaking stuff. In fact, I think Tim Keller's work, uh, The Prodigal God, is highly dependent upon Bailey's work. But this is what Bailey did. He went to these remote villages, and he read the story, he read this story to the people living in these ancient villages. He said, suppose there was a father, he had two sons, and the younger son went to his father and said, give me my share of the inheritance. And he asked the people, what do you think about this younger son? The people's response were unanimous. They were all astonished. They said, this son should have been beaten and kicked out of the village because he is actually wishing that his father was dead. He's actually wishing that his father was dead and everything that was due to him would be given to him in the present. However, they were even more astonished by the father's response. In the story, as we read, the father, he actually divides everything that he has. He liquidates his assets, and he gives it all to his children, to his two sons, to his own detriment. And when the people heard the father's response, they were dumbfounded. They asked the question, what kind of father is this? Now, the story continues. The son, he takes his money. He goes off and he spends it recklessly. He spends it wildly. Some speculate it was on women, others on food and drink, others just terrible, terrible investments. We're not exactly sure how he blew through all of his money, but the word used here is wasteful. The son wasted his money. Everything that his father had given to him, he wasted. The story continues that a famine hits the land, an unpredictable famine. And to stay alive, this son has to now take a job, a low, low job of feeding swine. Now this job, as you might imagine, was a job only taken up by the lowest of people. Pigs in the Middle East, even today, are considered unclean animals. Here's this man 
feeding unclean animals. As he's feeding these unclean animals, this son becomes so hungry that he starts to long for the food that the pigs are eating. He's thinking, my stomach is empty, but these pigs, they are full. What am I doing? What am I doing? The story says, at some point, the son, he comes to the realization that, you know what? I shouldn't be doing this. In verses 17 to 19, he says this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, I uh, don't want you to be mistaken here. The son's response is not one of remorse and regret. Instead, the son is thinking, how can I leave my terrible, terrible situation and go to a better one? Here, he's saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, Jesus is a masterful storyteller. He is deliberate with every word that he chooses. When he puts into the son's mouth, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, he's echoing the words of Pharaoh in Exodus 10. In Exodus 10, this is what Pharaoh says. After, you know, experiencing the plagues, he goes before Moses, and this is what Pharaoh says. He says, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. As we know in the story in Exodus, Pharaoh isn't really repenting. Instead, Pharaoh, he's feeling the pressure that's mounting due to these plagues, and he only pretends to repent so that he can call Moses back and manipulate him. When Jesus puts these words in the son's mouth, he's doing it deliberately. The prodigal had a similar intent. This son wanted to just manipulate his father into trusting him once more. And when the son says, as we looked, when the son says, make me like one of your hired servants, He's asking for a job. He's saying, train me for a job that you hire people out to do, and I will do that. I don't know if you've experienced this, but oftentimes in family, there's someone who has screwed up royally, and what does he do? He comes back to the family, right? And he says, listen, uh, I see that you're trying to do this contracting work. Hire me. I can do it. I can help. The prodigal son has a very similar intent in mind. He's saying, listen, you are hiring people out to do things. Let me do that work. This son is thinking, the only way that I can be accepted back into that community is to pay back everything he lost. The son knows that he is in debt, and he is willing to pay everything back. His idea is not to join the family, but his thought is, just treat me like one of your servants, please. Just make me an employee. Sadly, this son still doesn't understand. 
He thinks the issue is with lost money, but it isn't. The issue is with the father's broken heart. And the son is still lost. So the son, he goes back with this plan. He says, listen, I have this great plan. I'm going to ask my father to make me like one of his employees. And you can imagine on his way back, he's rehearsing this speech over and over and over again. He's trying to sound more genuine with each time. But before the son even reaches the village, he sees from afar, from afar his father running towards him. A few things with this. First, men in the Middle East do not run. Running is what children do. But men in the Middle East, they walk. They walk slowly. They walk slowly because they wear sandals. They are not barefoot. They walk slowly because their outer garments come all the way down to their ankles. Men do not run. They walk. But here is a man of dignity, an elder statesman of the village, who probably has not run for over 40 years. When he sees his son coming from afar, when he hears a whisper of his son, he picks up his garment, he bears his legs, and he runs. The word that Jesus uses means to race, to sprint. It's the same word that Paul uses to speak of athletes racing in games. A more accurate translation would be the father raced. He ran with everything that he had. Kenneth Bailey, once again, in reading this story to the villages, he asked the people, what do you think about this? And the people had a really, really good explanation. It was perfect. They said, this father ran not because he was glad, but he ran because he knew that this son who disgraced his father, who disgraced his entire village, he knew that when this son was returning, that the people were going to shame him they were going to spit on him, and even some were going to stone him. Deuteronomy 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, all the men of that city shall stone him to death with stones. The father, being filled with compassion, feeling merciful for his son, not wanting to see his son endure the shame, the humiliation, the ridicule and discipline that he, that he rightfully deserved, he races out to, to protect his son. He takes upon himself the shame and the humiliation due to the son. And before the son even has a chance to present his stupid, stupid plan in its entirety. The father says this, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. 
The best robe here is probably the father's robe. And in dressing his son with the father's robe, he's saying this, at the banquet, I want everyone to treat my son like they would treat me. This ring is probably a signet ring. In other words, it's a ring that represents ownership and rights. It's a ring that people would often sign with. It's a ring that says this person is responsible. This person has property. This person is a man of stature. He gives to his son the signet ring of the house. He puts it on him. The son who blew the entire family's or half of the family's fortune. He gives him ownership of the house once again. He puts shoes on his feet to show that this person, he is not a slave, he is not an employee, but he is my son. And he throws a banquet. Why does he throw a banquet? Why doesn't he just celebrate with his family? Because he wants the entire village to come and know that his son has returned. He wants the entire village to celebrate the fact that this son has returned. Friends, can I ask you, um, is this a reasonable response? You know, the son in the beginning wishes that his father was dead. He hurts the entire family. He wastes his family's fortune. He brings shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. And when he returns, what does the father do? He lavishes the son with love. You know, this story is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal meaning wasteful. But we have to ask the question, who is the more wasteful person? Who is the one actually wasting the family's wealth? Who is the one actually wasting his love and compassion on someone who clearly does not deserve it? While the prodigal son may have been wasteful with his family's inheritance, the father is actually wasting his love and his compassion on someone who does not deserve an ounce of it. If uh, you haven't caught on by now, uh, this story is not a hypothetical story of a father and a son. But in telling this story, Jesus is actually telling us about who God is and about who we are. Through this story, Jesus is telling us, this is who God is. The God of the universe is just like this disgraced father. This father who doesn't care. The father who doesn't care when he has to go from person to person asking, Will you buy my land? Will you buy my land? My son wants his property now. The shame that came upon him when the village heard his son's request, when it became public that his, father, that his son wanted to leave him, the shame that he endured, he did not care. Jesus is telling us through this story, we are that son. We are like that son who says to the father, 
I don't care about you. I want to live my life without you. You mean nothing to me. Jesus is saying, we are the son who blatantly sins against the father, desiring the gifts of the father, but not the father himself. Through this story, Jesus is saying, God is that disgraced father who had to hear and experience all of that. Further, Jesus is saying, God is that disgraced father waiting and waiting and waiting for his son to return. And when he hears the slightest whisper that his lost son was now returning, God is that undignified father who lifts his outer garment, who bears everything. And he sprints, he runs, he races. Jesus is saying God is that undignified father who is not afraid to look like a fool. He's saying God is this father who is filled with compassion, who doesn't want the shame and embarrassment to come upon us, so he takes it upon himself. This is, I think, the, the part that speaks powerfully to me because even though my father is not a Middle Eastern man, as you might tell, he is a traditional, traditional man. He is a hyper, hyper traditional man. Uh, I never saw my father run before. I never saw my father wear shorts before, even at the beach. I've seen pastors wear suits at the beach, but my father never wears, uh, he never wears shorts. I never heard my father sing. Uh, I never heard my father laugh out loud. I've seen him smile, but I never heard him laugh. My father is a dignified man who lives this man who lives his life like an ancient Middle Eastern man. When this father in this story bolts, when he sprints, when he's not afraid to be undignified because of his son, because he is filled with so much compassion, I mean, that, that hits deep. Through this story, Jesus is saying, we are like the prodigal son though we think that we can pay our father back for all of our sins, though we have this idea, this plan, you know what, I've sinned against God, and this is my way back. I'm going to pay God back in this way. Jesus is telling us the only way to be accepted by the Father is through his mercy and his compassion. It is only by grace. And though at times, if we would honestly admit, though at times we would prefer just a master-servant relationship with God to simplify things, God, he doesn't want any of that. He wants a father-son. He wants a father-daughter relationship. He doesn't care how much we've wasted. He doesn't care how much we've messed up. 
He doesn't care how much shame we've caused him and we brought upon him. He wants us and he desires to give us everything. This absurd, absurd story is a beautiful picture of the gospel story. It's a story how sinners are reconciled to God, how you and I are forgiven and received back into the Father's arms. The story tells us it is by grace and through grace. And while it cost us nothing, it cost God everything. You know, a lot of um, Muslims and a lot of Jews, a lot of non-Christians point back to Luke 15. And uh, they say this, they say, if Luke 15 is a picture of the gospel, if it's a picture of the Father's amazing, amazing love, why do we need the cross? They mention, listen, Luke 15 is a picture of the gospel. We don't need the cross. We don't need atonement for sin. What's all this story about Jesus dying for sin? It's God's love that we have to experience and know. But you see, many miss the fact that while God here is pouring out his love, it's God who first experienced rejected love. All throughout the story, it's the father who is enduring the agony of estrangement. All throughout the story, it's the father being rejected. It's the father being humiliated. It's the father experiencing self-emptying humiliation. While the reader might think, yeah, this love comes without of cost. As we understand what the Father endured, we know that it cost him everything. And we see this climactically at the cross. When to bring us back, when to forgive and accept us, he had to ultimately give his only son. Again, right now, we are in the middle of a sermon series exploring what it means to love one another. And we're talking and we're saying that to love one another, we have to pursue one another. We have to be active in each other's lives. We have to go after people. We have to confront them. We have to seek them out. But I don't think we can talk about pursuing other people without first talking about how God pursued us first. If we understand this, if we understand that we have first been pursued and we all are in need of God's pursuit, I think this would free us from being judgmental of one another and it would cause us to be compassionate and understanding. If we understand that God had first pursued us, it should create in us a desire to see broken people these broken people who are trying to earn their way back, it would create in us a desire to see them experience the freeing power of God's unconditional grace. If we understand that God pursues us first, we would deeply desire 
pursuing other people so that they can experience that as well. Let me just end with this story. Uh, last year, around this time, the well-known evangelist Billy Graham passed away. Billy Graham, I believe, has five children, and his youngest daughter uh, is named after her mother, I believe, Ruth. At the funeral, the children all got up, and they gave a three-minute eulogy of their father. And Ruth, at that time, shared a well-known story. Ruth had shared this story with the world multiple times, and as they buried their father, she shared it once again. This is what she says. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated, I was floundered. My husband had betrayed me at the deepest levels, and I understood that I had biblical grounds for divorce, but I did not want to be divorced. I did not want to hurt or displease God in any way. But she eventually got on, but she eventually went on to get divorced. Now she continues, my family thought it would be a good idea for me to move and get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. And there the pastor of the church introduced me to a handsome widower. And we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, they're almost grown. They can't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us get to know this man. Well, my parents had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sin sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I made a terrible, terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. On my way back home, I felt wrecked. I was coming home with my life in pieces. Shame weighed me down. I dreaded having to meet my parents' gaze. I didn't think I could handle what their eyes might communicate. I wanted to run and hide, but I could not. I had nowhere else to go. I could not undo my mistake. I knew I had to face it. I felt unworthy to go home, but I needed my parents. It was a two day drive. Throughout the drive, questions whirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my own children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling around with you. We told you not to do it. You embarrassed us once again. Many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend into my father's driveway. And there my father was standing, waiting for me. My father, who had every reason to rebuke, 
wrapped his strong arms around me. He pulled me into a warm embrace, and he greeted me with these simple words, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. My father's embrace at that moment was one of the most profound gestures of acceptance I have ever experienced. To be utterly broken and still accepted, to feel ugly and yet be loved, to feel like an outcast and still be welcomed, I marveled at the contrast between my heart, full of shame and regret, and my father's, so full of love. I must have felt many things at once in his arms, shock, relief, gratitude, safety, disbelief. One thing I most definitely felt was shattered, and through his embrace, my father let me know that I had permission to feel this way. He was not condemning me. No defense or explanation was required. My father was not God, but he showed me what God is like on that day. His one act of grace changed my life and informed who I am. I am so grateful that God accepts me as I am, hurting, wounded, broken. I'm glad he chooses me to be a part of his family, regardless of his past mistakes and sins. He wants me, he cares about me, his arms are open to me at all times. And she ends by saying this, God does not hold in his hand a list of my failures. He is not waiting to judge me. He's waiting to be with me. He's waiting to embrace me and welcome me home. And that invitation is open for you as well. Join me in prayer.